All right, well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and after quite a, a lengthy series, we're drawing this letter to a close, and I will do my best this morning to, to get through our remaining text in this letter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 to 28. I've entitled this sermon, Faithful is He. Faithful is He. Now, before we get into this text, I do want to provide a, a reminder of where we've come so far, a reminder of our, our, uh, the, the, the structure of the letter. And you remember way back in January of, of last year, we, uh, we began this trek in this letter looking at the salutation in verse 1, as Paul began this being his first canonical letter to this young church of just six months old, a church that he had planted on his second missionary journey. You can look at Acts chapter 17 and, and get a summation of Luke's account of the start of that church. What had happened was that Paul had been, had been uh, untimely removed from that context, as we would read in Acts chapter 17, uh, the uh, threats to his life and the, in the, the tensions with the city authorities required that Paul leave the city earlier than what he so desired. And in his pastoral concern, he recognizes that he was not able to impart to that young congregation everything that he so desired. He goes on to say later on in chapter 2 verse 18, that he had many times wanted to return to them, but Satan had hindered him, probably a reference to the fact that in order for Paul to, to get uh, released or, or to be able to, to escape the city, the city magistrates required that one of the believers pay a bond in order for Paul to walk free, and that bond remained in place, and Paul for a time could not return to this congregation that he loved so much. But in the meantime, he had sent a, an emissary, he sent Timothy to visit the church, and we read of that in chapter 2 and 3, how Timothy had come back and brought a report of the faith and the, the works and, and the love of this young congregation. Timothy also brought back a report of some of the things that were still lacking in their faith, and over chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, we've been looking at both Paul's gratitude and his thanksgiving for the wonderful things that God had done in that congregation, as well as looking at the things that were lacking in the faith of those Thessalonian believers. Now, as he wraps up his letter, he gives a benediction, a closing farewell to this dear congregation, and although we do not have time to trace all of the, all the small details in this benediction, I will say this, this benediction is filled with echoes of all the things that Paul has addressed in this letter. In fact, we're going to see it, it goes all the way back to 1 verse 1, where Paul wishes to the Thessalonian congregation grace and peace and now in these closing verses, he comes back to those fundamental ideas, and we will read once again of peace and grace. Now, although Paul in these closing words of verses 23 to 28 follows what we would say would be a, a customary conclusion to any Greco-Roman letter in the day, 
Paul followed those conventions. Although Paul does that, he does not simply choose the conventions meaninglessly. It's not artificial. In fact, what Paul does in a very unusual kind of way is fill the farewell statement with all kinds of profound doctrine and personal concern. He uses this this conclusion to the letter, this farewell, this benediction, as one last opportunity to once again express his deep concern and his love to this congregation as well as to emphasize what I would say would be one of the most important fundamental doctrines that we find in the entire letter. But as we go through this benediction this morning, I want to focus our thoughts on on three sections to this benediction, and we're going to spend our time primarily in the first one. And the first one is this. We will see in verses 23 to 24, powerful consolation. Powerful consolation. This was a congregation that had faced a multitude of challenges And it began on the first days of their faith as they accepted the word of God with with great tribulation. Their countrymen had responded very negatively to the repentance and the conversion, the turning from idols that this congregation had experienced. And so from the very start, this was a congregation that felt the pressure of the world against it. This was also a congregation that had faced challenges with respect to understanding the future. They had some in their congregation that had died. Some who had come to faith and then shortly after their conversion, they had passed away and this congregation was certainly concerned about where these these deceased brothers and sisters, where they fit in God's eschatological plan. They were mourning for them and so this was a congregation dealing with those issues as well, and and many others. And so as Paul wraps this letter up, he gives some powerful consolation that we will see in verses 23 to 24. He will also give some personal commands. Here we see Paul perhaps at his most personal, giving some practical instructions that display his shepherding concern, his love, and as we will see just briefly even this morning, his humility as he asks those Thessalonian believers to pray for him. And then finally, there is a precious commendation that seals it all off. As Paul always does in his letters, he brings them back to the most fundamental reality of the Christian life, and it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So powerful consolation, verses 23 to 24, personal commands, verses 25 to 27, and then precious commendation, verse 28. Let's read the text and see how this closing, this farewell, fits into those three emphases. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. 
the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As I said, we're going to spend most of our time in verses 23 and 24 looking at the powerful consolation that Paul gives in his benediction. Again, look, look at verse 23. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now just a few general observations here as we read through that prayer. First of all, it's, it's important to recognize that, that prayer is central to Paul's life. It, it isn't something that he commands meaninglessly when back in verse 17 of chapter 5, he calls upon the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Paul was one who practiced this. Prayer permeated his life. And we can see that as Paul would move from, from one section in his letter to another section, it was always bathed in prayer. It begins that way with the salutation and Paul's prayer for grace and peace. And then we find that in the middle of this letter, as Paul concludes the, the first half of this letter, which is focused on updating the Thessalonians uh, as to Paul's state of, 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 of love for the church, and Paul also gives thanks to God for the uh, work that he has done there. We see this prayer. Look at this for just a moment. Chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. You remember from our study, that marks the midway point in this letter. Marks the end of the first half. And notice there Paul's prayer. It's so consistent. It illustrates to us the, the important things that Paul focused on in his prayer life. And we read this at the end of the first half. He says, now may God, our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as also we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And now as Paul concludes the second half of the letter. Those same ideas are prevalent or present, predominant in his praying once again, serving for us as a, an important reminder about what should fill our own prayers. Paul cannot go far without bringing up these fundamental issues. And as we look at this, notice the, the, the areas of focus in this prayer that reflect all that we've been studying over the previous months. Paul prays, first of all, for sanctification. He, he, he speaks of, or he, he gives this verb to sanctify, and then again, uh, near the end, he talks about them being preserved. This is his focus. This is his pastoral heart. This is what mattered to Paul. He, he wanted to see these Thessalonians sanctified, growing in holiness, or as he will say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, perfecting holiness, or as he says in Philippians chapter 2, working out their salvation. Sanctification was, was always a major concern in Paul's praying, and then we also see a, another area of focus in this letter that we've studied so much in the previous chapters, and that is a focus on Christ's coming. Paul is future forward-looking there is no sense of what some would call realized eschatology when, 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 when Paul would just think, well, this is all there ever is. 
just this state. No, Paul is focused on the future. He has what we could say an eternal perspective in the sense that he is driving his whole thought and his whole ministry, his whole praying toward a future event. And he describes that as the parousia, as the coming of Christ. And in fact, we could say this, that it is that reality, the sure coming of Christ that will happen that is motivating Paul to pray in this way. There is coming a time when Christ will return. And in fact, we saw that in chapter 4, didn't we? Verses 13 to 18, that for those in the church, those who are in Christ, that coming would represent a wonderful moment when we would all be caught up together in the air and forever be with Christ. But for the world, we see that in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, that for the world, that coming of Christ is the event of judgment. It's when judgment would then be poured out upon this world. And that reality, that understanding of the future, drives everything that Paul does in the present, including his praying. Now let's look at this prayer in a little bit more detail. First of all, Paul says himself. Now in the English, this does not come through, but in the original, it is the very first word of the praying. Paul uses an emphatic pronoun. He doesn't need to use this. He doesn't need to add this, but he does because he is putting emphasis on someone. The one to whom this pronoun refers is the one receiving the emphasis. Now may the God of peace himself. Now, first and foremost, we could conclude that because Paul is praying for the sanctification of the Thessalonians, it should be clear to us that that sanctification is ultimately dependent upon God. If it wasn't, why would we pray for it? So even in that sense, Paul, in in praying for sanctification on the part of the Thessalonians, is making it clear God is the ultimate agent in sanctification. Earlier on in the letters, we'll see in just a moment, Paul has said, God's will for you is your sanctification. Nonetheless, Paul recognizes that the accomplishment of this consecration to God does not rest ultimately in our hands. If it is to take place, it is only achievable by the one represented in that pronoun, himself. Paul does not want to leave any ambiguity. And as we will see more as we go through this text, and this is the consolation that comes, beloved, sanctification is something that God will achieve. He is the ultimate agent. Now Paul describes him also here as the God of peace. In his prayer, he addresses, interestingly here, he addresses God, the one who would accomplish this this sanctification, as the God of peace. The God of peace. Now what does this, this notion communicate? Well, for Paul, peace is so much more than just the absence of war. It's so much more than just the absence of tension. For Paul and for other biblical writers, peace describes true prosperity. This is the soul's prosperity when it is at peace because the soul that is at peace is the soul that has received grace from God. Go back to the very first verse in this letter. 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul gives that wish, that brief prayer for the Thessalonians, and he says this, grace to you and peace. Now, it's very important to recognize that Paul does not say grace and peace to you. And that's not just a translational issue that comes through in the original. It is not grace and peace to you. Paul says, grace to you and peace. And by doing that, he sets them off a little bit. One is the cause and the other is the effect. Grace to you. And in light of that comes the peace. Grace to you. And in light of that comes the peace. And now Paul reaches all the way back to that reality and incorporates that notion of peace here to indicate to us that God is the great reconciler. God is the one who makes peace. God is the one who secures it, who makes it possible, and who brings it into realization in the soul of the regenerate one. It's not we who reconcile ourselves with God. It is not we who cross the chasm created by sin. It is God who is the one who does this, who is responsible for this. Think of Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes to the Romans some years later. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because God is the God of peace, because God is the God who reconciles, because God is the God who can find the way to bring man who is at enmity with him into relationship with him through the grace of the Lord Jesus, because God is the one who does that, he is the one who is uniquely appealed to for this sanctification. If there's anyone who can accomplish sanctification, can deal with the problem of, of our distance from perfection and holiness, it is the God who is the source of peace. Now notice Paul's focus here in this prayer. He focuses his prayer once again, as he did back in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. He does so again in this prayer as he closes the second half on sanctification once again. Now, what does sanctification mean, this verb, to sanctify? At a basic level, we understand sanctification in this way. Sanctification involves two elements. It involves a separation from something and a consecration to something new. That's the fundamental idea of sanctification, to separate from something, to separate from the mundane, to separate from the sinful, to separate from the worldly. But not just that, it is to consecrate it to something new, to set it aside for a new purpose, to dedicate it to a new reason for being. That's the idea of sanctification. And this has been much on Paul's heart as he writes to these Thessalonians. And you can understand why. Remember, these are converts who have not come from a Christian heritage. These were converts who, according to chapter 1, verse 9, served idols. 
These were converts who participated in all the civic festivals, which always included religion and civics all together. It included the worship of idols and all the kind of immorality that went with it. It was just part of being a Thessalonian, part of being a a resident, a citizen of a city like that where the temples were many and, and the altars were many and the idols were many and it was all just part of life. And these Thessalonians had already experienced an element of sanctification. They had already been separated from their idols. Chapter 1, verse 9, they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. We, we call that initial sanctification, we, we call that positional sanctification. We call that positional sanctification. What happens? What happened to the Thessalonians and what happens to us at the moment of our conversion? There is a sanctification that is accomplished there by God as he breaks the power of sin so that we must no longer go back to those idols. And he then consecrates us to himself, gives us a brand new life of living to God. There is that positional sanctification, that momentary and definitive sanctification that happens at the moment of regeneration. You can see this in 1 Corinthians, for example. Look at 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. This, is, this happened to the Corinthians as well, this positional sanctification. Paul writes, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Speaks of a completed act. Now, it's not that those Corinthians instantly became perfect. You just read the rest of the letter and you get a very clear picture of how far they were from perfection. Nonetheless, Paul is able to describe them as being sanctified. There is that positional sanctification that has taken place as the bondage to sin has been broken, the chains smashed, and now they are free to live for the glory of God, something they could never do before that moment. There is a definitive, a positional sanctification that happens at the moment of conversion. But then there's a kind of sanctification that continues through the Christian life. And this is what we often think of when we think of the doctrine of sanctification, that continual process of, of separation from sin. We still are going through that in a practical way, trying to, to, to separate ourselves from the the practice of sin, and, 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 and we're going through this process of consecration, of consecration increasingly to God in, in our practical living. And in fact, this has been the focus of Paul in, in chapter 4. Remember chapter 4, verse 3. When Paul talks about this kind of sanctification, this increasing pursuit of holiness, where he said, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will. This is, this is what it is. This is what God has told you, revealed to you. Your sanctification. 
your ongoing increasing separation from sin and, and the things of this world and your ongoing increasing consecration to God, your ongoing and deepening mortification of sin, specifically there Paul speaks of sexual sin, and your ongoing consecration to God, your ongoing vivification of those fruits of the Spirit. That is what God's will is for our lives. Paul goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 7, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but he's called us in sanctification. His purpose in saving us is not to leave us in bondage to sin, not to leave us in the in the mud, with the swine. His purpose is to call us out of that, to bring us out of that, not just positionally, but even in this life, practically, so that our experience would be ever increasing joy as, as sin is put off and as, as, as the virtues of Christ are put on. That is why God has saved us. One theologian, Louis Burkhoff, has defined sanctification this way. Sanctification may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. Paul prays that God himself would sanctify, in this case, you. And in, in the original context, he prays for the entire congregation of Thessalonians, and he prays not only for them corporately, expressing his concern for each and every member of the congregation, but he also prays that they would be sanctified entirely, entirely. The idea there is totally complete, through and through. And this indicates for us that Paul's prayer for, for sanctification here relates to a, a third kind of sanctification. Not, he's not referring here to the positional sanctification that is achieved at the moment of our regeneration. And he's not even necessarily thinking of the process that we go through through the entire Christian life, but Paul has his sights set on the future. He is praying for a time when there would be perfect sanctification, perfective, final sanctification, what we could even call glorification. When once and for all, definitively, once and for all, any sin in any form will be completely put away from us. And there would be no desire, no temptation would lead us to sin, but from that moment on, we would be so thoroughly consecrated to God and separated from sin that our greatest and consistent and eternal desire would be nothing but holiness. No desire whatsoever for anything that is the hint of evil. Paul is looking forward to that day. Entire sanctification. Entire 
sanctification. Now, as we continue to go through this, this prayer, we, we see, notice, after he says the word entirely, there is a semicolon there. And the translators have done this to help us understand that this prayer is broken into two parts. And these two parts are generally parallel to each other. They reflect really the same ideas, but with a few different nuances. In fact, this is so interesting to observe in the original that the word complete, notice in your text, you have this this word complete, and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete. It actually is the first word of the second half. Paul just says entirely, and immediately he says complete as he begins the second half. It's what we call a chiasm, where Paul has a center to his thinking here. And he repeats things in direct proximity. And when he does that, he puts the emphasis there. And so we see that in this prayer, he is focused on completion, totality. This totality serves as the center of his prayer. He is praying for these Thessalonians for total, entire, complete sanctification. This is his ultimate concern. Now, what in the second half, is to be preserved complete. Well, this has elicited no small amount of debate. What does Paul mean when he wants the preservation, the complete preservation of spirit and soul and body? Now, just as a passing comment to notice something here, In the second half, Paul turns his concern now to the individual. In the first half, he just used the pronoun you, and it was referring to everybody in the congregation. He wanted all of them, the entire church, to experience this this entire sanctification. But now in the second half, he takes it to the individual. He takes it to the individual. He longs to see each individual in that congregation preserved, complete, But what does he mean by spirit and soul and body? Now we can start off with what we do know, that in this list of of components, that we can break this up into two general categories. Uh, There is an immaterial category of man and a material category. We can look at this and see, well, Paul is praying for the sanctification of the body, the material aspect of our being. And it's interesting to note that for Paul, he's he's not seeing the, the spirit released from the body as the ultimate state, not at all. He sees that the ultimate goal of salvation, when it will be experienced in its totality, means that we will be in our bodies We will have our physicality, that physicality is not inherently evil, that our bodies are not inherently evil, something that we must try to find release from. No, Paul recognizes that this is an essential component to the human existence, and he is praying for the sanctification of our own physical bodies. We also see the immaterial aspect of man in those words, spirit and soul. But can we, in the immaterial, divide between spirit and soul? 
Is that Paul's purpose here? Now, when you read the commentaries, you'll read many different views. I think I counted about six major views on this issue. Let me summarize them into three. It's a little bit easier, especially with the time limitation that we have. Some suggest here that Paul is using these terms not to identify specific components, but really simply to emphasize totality. That's it. In other words, don't make any significant distinctions here. It's not the point of Paul. And those who take this view would compare it with the great Shema. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now try to pick those apart. The idea there isn't necessarily to, to do that. The idea in the Shema is to emphasize totality. Whatever aspect of your experience, with that you are to love the Lord your God. And some would say, well, Paul's doing the same thing. He's reflecting that very idea, and so we are not to take any kind of distinction between these three components. You could essentially paraphrase those, those three things and just say, entirely, totally. Paul is just being emphatic by being redundant. Others suggest that the first two terms are pure synonyms, that Paul is just thrown in two of them when he really just means one. And so he says something like this, that may your spirit, that is your soul and your body be preserved. That Paul is simply piling up that second noun to redefine the first to show that they're exactly the same thing. But it's hard to avoid the fact that Paul's language is very straightforward here. And I think in the end of the day, the most simplest reading is the best. That Paul does see some kind of distinction between soul and spirit. He does see that there is some kind of difference between those two components of man. Now, what is that distinction? That's where we need to draw the line. Scripture does not say. In fact, when we look at Paul's other writings, he often uses soul and spirit interchangeably. And I think what Paul is doing here is he is emphasizing the fact that distinctions exist there are these components to us, a soul, a spirit, and, and there is a body to us. That's who we are. But don't press it beyond that. Paul doesn't. He doesn't describe the difference between soul and spirit. He doesn't go into a lengthy exposition of what these two words means. He simply says they exist. And so we must leave it at that. One commentator puts it this way. What then shall we say of the first terms spirit and soul. First, it is very likely, given the way Paul here expresses himself, that he might think of the human spirit and soul as distinct entities in some way. But how he might think of them in this way is not at all clear from the rest of his letters, since he tends to use such terms both broadly and interchangeably. One is hard-pressed to come final conclusions." And that's where I would land on this. I would say that after looking at this text and the language of it, Paul is listing for us components. But he simply doesn't give us a basis in which to distinguish. It is part of our immaterial 
nature or our immaterial existence to have both soul and spirit, but but how do we how do we distinguish? That's just part of the mystery that will remain that way until we reach the presence of Christ. Another observation here to look at as we're going to have to we're going to have to continue this study next week but there is a driving point that Paul has here when he says and may your spirit and soul and body every aspect of you every part of your existence may every part of your existence be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the focal point for Paul. This is the point to which all history is driving. He knows this moment is coming and his longing for the Thessalonians is that they would be ready. He's, he prayed this back in chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul knew this moment is coming. This moment is coming. And the ascended, glorious Jesus will not tolerate sin. He will not bring it into his presence. He will not sit down and fellowship with it. And so Paul's prayer, as he knows this day is at hand, is to pray that they would be totally, completely through and through sanctified preserved. Now as we close for this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions at this point. I'd really wanted to get into verse 24. We'll have to do that next week. But some questions already to prepare us for the ultimate consolation that comes in verse 24. Let me ask you, do you share this same concern for total sanctification for this last week and the things about which you prayed. In your praying, whether for others or for yourself, did you find or would you find any echo of Paul's heartfelt, most basic concern? Do you share this concern for total sanctification? Second, and so important, do you appeal to God as the ultimate agent of this effort, of this sanctification? There will be some in response to the first question who will say, no, nah, that's not my concern. I'm, I'm concerned about whether I can do this or I can do that, whether I'll get this job or that job, and that's my greatest concern. I want to have a have an enjoyable life and, and prosperity in this life and so on and so forth, but total, complete sanctification, that's not part of my thinking. But then there will be those who in response to this second question are also at fault. They have an idea that, well, God has saved me, so he is 
set me up. Now the rest is in my hands. And so, yeah, sanctification isn't part of my praying because, you know what, it's all on me. It is something that I must work out. It's something that I am responsible for. So the question here to you is, do you appeal to God as the ultimate agent in this effort? That you recognize you can't produce this. That on your own, you don't have what it takes. You need Him. He must produce this. And then thirdly, a question to leave you with this morning is this. Do you understand that history is driving to this inescapable event of Christ's coming? History is driving to this moment. Remember when we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, we talked about the imminency of these things. That the way Paul looked at the the coming of Christ for his church, when the dead in Christ would rise, and those who alive will be caught up together in that moment, Paul looked at that as possible, even in, in his faith, he believed it, it was likely even in his own lifetime. History is driving at this moment. And in our problem often is that as we see the days go by and the years go by and think, well, that was 2,000 years ago almost for Paul, we tend to have this thinking that, well, if it was so far away for Paul, 2,000 years, then it's got to be another 100 years or 2,000 years. As the days go on, we, we don't have the right approach of thinking it is drawing ever closer. It is closer than it has ever been. Instead, we have this idea that for every day that passes, there must be more to come. He is slow. But as Paul teaches here in this letter, we are driving. We are driving to this event. Nothing can stop it. The Father has set the process in motion. He has determined the day, and He is sending His Son for the church. That reality must affect us every single day in how we look at life, how we make decisions, how we plan, how we relate to others, how we evangelize. Do you understand that history is driving to this inescapable event? Well, next week we will get into what is very, a very, very important truth that, that comes as wonderful consolation in light of the conviction that comes from these questions. So I encourage you to come back next week and we'll look at what I believe to be the most precious words of this letter that I certainly need and you do as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of your text that bring to us a very clear picture of what reality is all about. We confess to you our fickleness, that we are so frequently attracted 
by the silliness and the temporal things of this world. We pray that this prayer that we have studied this morning would reorient our perspective. We pray that you would make sanctification a dominant part of our everyday thinking and in conjunction with that, make as a part of our everyday thinking this moment that may we be a people who are defined by these two things, just like the Thessalonians, who turn from their idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son, your Son, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Father, make that true of us. And then, Father, prepare our hearts for what are the precious words that follow this this prayer. Verse 24, faithful is he who calls, and he will bring it to pass. We thank you for your precious word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.